0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical
1: dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The United States may be facing a perfect storm with an end of year deadline for North Korea diplomacy. In this episode, Mike sits down with former National Security Council official, Victor Cha, CSI's Korea chair and professor of government at Georgetown. Mike is also joined by former senior CIA analyst Sumi Terry, senior fellow at the CSIS Korea chair. The conversation begins with a discussion of how Sue's background in intelligence analysis and Victor's background in academia prepared them for a career in Korea policy. The trio then take a comprehensive look at the Korean peninsula, from a big picture analysis of the peninsula's place in American grand strategy to an examination of the present day perfect storm of possible alliance decoupling between the United States and South Korea. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green. I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Dr. Victor Cha, a colleague at both uh, CSIS and Georgetown, and formerly a colleague at the NSC, and Dr. Sumi Terry, a uh, colleague at CSIS, a uh, lecturer at Georgetown, and uh, my former briefer when I was at NSC. We're going to talk about the geopolitics of the Korean Peninsula um, and the risks of a perfect storm, that uh, our presence uh, and our alliance at Korea may be at risk for domestic political reasons in both countries, perhaps, but at a time of tectonic shifting plates in Asia. Maybe we shouldn't worry. Maybe we should. We'll get into that. But I, I always like to start, uh, Victor and Sue, by kind of how you got here. So let's start with uh, with Victor. I know uh, we've known each other, gosh, 25 years. You were a banker. How'd you get into the Asian security <laughs> business?
0: So yeah, I, when I graduated from college, I was an economics major. And so I was interested in the finance world as the 80s, everybody was interested in that. And I really didn't like it, so I ended up um, going to England for two years to find myself. I did a degree in PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford. Um, and it was there I realized I wanted to do a PhD in political science. Um, so that's how I ended up in this field. And then the career stuff actually came later. Um, it was, uh, you know, when I was at the dissertation stage, then I started thinking about what region of the world do I want to write on. And, and that's when the, I became interested in Korea and Japan. At Columbia, you could not major in the region, regions of the world. You could not major in Korea. So, I actually did Japan with people like Jerry Curtis and Jim Morley at the time. Uh, but so, Korea sort of came later
1: in my academic career. So, that's probably why your dissertation and first book, Alignment Despite Antagonism, looks at U.S.-Japan-Korea trilateral? It's yeah. Because you started yeah. with Japan?
0: Yeah. I started with Japan, but I was quite interested in Korea. And uh, My advisor, Jim Morley, had actually also written a book about Japan-Korea relations way back when, like in 1965. It's a small book. No one ever read it. I read it, and I, I thought it was a great topic, and uh, these were the two most important US allies in Asia, and they had a difficult relationship, so trying to understand
1: how that worked was uh, was interesting to me. It was titled, Alignment Despite Antagonism. If you had to retitle it today, would it would be Alignment and Even More Antagonism, <laughs> yeah, right. or dealignment and Antagonism? Alignment <laughs> well, Question, Antagonism, exclamation <laughs> <laughs> point. <laughs> and Sue, how'd you get into this business?
2: Well, when I was at graduate school, I thought I wanted Which to was, do uh, Fletcher School of mm-hmm. Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, and I thought I wanted to do... China, uh, because China is China. China is is the future. And so I did my master's in Chinese foreign policy, and I wanted to do a doctorate uh, on China. My dissertation advisors basically said, listen, why do you want to do China? You're Korean American, you speak the language fluently, you understand the culture. Korea is an important field, not only because of North Korea, North Korean threat, but South Korea, you know, 12th largest economy in the world, future of the Korean Peninsula. So basically, they convinced me to do uh, Korean history for a PhD. And then I thought I was just going to academia. And I came from New York before then. So I thought, oh, I'll go back to New York and find a place to teach like Columbia, NYU. Of course, academia does not work like that. Mm-hmm. So I, the positions that were available was just not anywhere in New York, but somewhere really far. Meanwhile, CIA came to recruit. And uh, I still remember the recruiter uh, asked me this question about, don't you want to know what Kim Jong-un eats for breakfast? <laughs> I'm like, well, I think I kind of do. So it's basically curiosity and the fact that I wanted to be in Northern Virginia, D.C. versus somewhere else. Yeah. Um, that led me to just join the CIA. Never found out what Kim Jong-un ate for breakfast. I was going to ask. Um, but I do know that his favorite food was toro. Potato. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah, but yeah. from the sushi yeah. chef, not yeah. through any you know, crazy intelligence. But that was a couple of days before nine eleven. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and you know, I thought I was gonna be there for a couple of years, but of course I didn't and that But of course
1: your highlight uh, yeah. career wise was when you were my briefer when yes, I was at the NSA, and you had to get up at what, two in the morning to prepare? Yes,
2: three in the morning. Three in the morning. Um every morning I had to come in to CIA and three in the morning I started preparing all the intel that came in through the night. And at that time you covered all over Asia, including South Asia. Afghanistan, Pakistan. So there was a lot of work.
1: It was a lot of And Asian. having to
2: deal with you every morning yeah. was a <laughs> lot of you, work. You,
1: you, you made me look good. So thank you. Uh, Victor, start with you. But who, in your thinking about the geopolitical, instru- not the political science piece as much, but more of the policy, geopolitical, strategic piece, who, who do you consider important influences as you've looked at the Korean Peninsula and Asia?
0: One of them for sure was um, Han Sung-ju, <laughs> a professor at Korea University, uh, later became foreign minister. Um, and then ambassador, also ambassador to, to I, I first met him when he was actually doing a Ford Foundation Fellowship in New York from Korea University and he taught a course, a colloquium on Korean foreign policy at Columbia. And that was actually the first class I had ever taken on Korea. I'd taken nothing as undergraduate, certainly nothing at Oxford, is that before um,
1: he became foreign minister? Yeah, yeah,
0: it was before. Um, he was he was a professor. He was writing a column for Newsweek International, and so that was the first class I took, and and that was really what got me quite interested uh, in in looking. So he was a very, I think he was a very important um, um, influence. I mean, there were others along the way, even though he wasn't doing Korea. Bob Jervis was a very important influence as well, just because. Professor at uh, Columbia. Professor he at was Columbia. On your, was he the
1: chair of your committee? Yeah, he
0: was chair mm-hmm. of my dissertation committee. He was terrific. Uh, historian Gary Ledyard at Columbia was also a very important influence. So I feel very fortunate. I had very good mentors along the way. Sue.
2: Well, I, I mean, I'm not saying this literally because you guys are sitting in front of me. But you know, for me, because I was spend most of my time in intelligence. I looked at policymakers and slash scholars like you guys. I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, Victor was, been, has been around. I'm not trying to age you here. Let's be sure not, not to edit this part out. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm not trying to age you here, but I mean, you know, read your things. I mean, this is truly, I, I'm sure there's a lot of former students of yours who say that. So, um, I mean, there are other folks that who just, but it's, I, I really would say that, both you and Mike and, and Victor have a special space in academia slash national security. And for people who come from intelligence background or not, that's the sort of, that's the, the most impactful things because you guys are always also policy focused while you're doing academic work.
1: That's so. kind of you. And so hopefully uh, what yeah. we're conveying in this podcast and in Victor's podcast to help people coming up in the field think about how to bridge academia yeah. and policy and strategy. Right. Almost three different worlds. Let's turn to the Korean Peninsula. Should we be uh, uh, worried, Victor, about the perfect storm? Tell us a little bit about what you see as part of the perfect storm. You've done a bit of data analytics to put it in context.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, as we approach the end of this year, there are a number of pieces that are moving uh, that, and they could all come together sort of at the end of the year. The, you know, the first piece is some sort of deal with North Korea. Uh, president Moon wants it, President Trump wants it, the North Korean leader has said a deal or else by the end of the year. There are other things obviously that's happening that are happening in Washington now that may compel the president to look for some bright shiny object. And so a deal with North Korea in which there is a peace declaration could be, could be something we see by the end of the year. And in no small reason because the one person who is the most vocal in opposing a uh, deal at the Hanoi summit is no longer in the White House and that's John Bolton. Um, the other piece of this is we have these negotiations between the U.S. and South Korea on burden sharing, special measures agreement. Um, five billion dollars, five times more than what the U.S. has asked for be in the past. And that is a negotiation, at least all the indicators are that that's not going to go very well. And the Korean people are going to be quite angry about it. We've sort of scraped uh, social media data on this. And there is a, whenever there's a story or uh, something about SMA in the news, the South Korean chatter around it is exponentially higher than a story about North Korea uh, in the, in the South Korean news. So they follow this very, very carefully. Um, <clears throat> and so the perfect storm could be a combination of a failed SMA, a peace deal with North Korea, where the president says, if you don't want to pay and I have peace with North Korea, then we really don't need these troops here. And this wouldn't be just something he did on a whim because... There is a long history. We have a data set in beyond parallel that goes back 30 years, where President Trump has made over 100 statements to this effect um, the, uh, with regard to the, the lack of a need for troops in Korea. Um, that this is a statement he has believed this since 1990, uh, remarkably consistent. So you know it's this concatenation of events that could come together at the end of uh, at the end of the year that could spell, frankly, disaster for the alliance?
1: So the public support in the U.S. for U.S.-Korea Alliance and for U.S. forward presence is pretty robust. Chicago Council on Global Affairs and other polling. And it's pretty good in Korea, too. And we know from our interactions with The Hill that in Congress, there's there's at least on the Foreign Affairs and Defense Armed Services Committees, there's pretty broad, in fact, almost universal bipartisan support for the alliance. But what about in Seoul? Uh, Sue, so you have President Trump's 100 statements, 30 of which were specifically on how uh, we're getting ripped off by having troops in Korea. What about in Seoul? I mean, in Seoul, the, in Korea, public support is for U.S. forces, for the alliance, as robust as it's ever been. But within the Blue House, you have progressives who may sort of be the mirror of what Victor just described with President Trump, skeptical about U.S. presence, skeptical about the U.S. We have the JISOMI issue and we have, you know, the demands from the Blue House for wartime OPCON for transfer, the operational control of our joint uh, Combining command shift to Korea and other things that could be seen as um, essentially trying to push the U.S. off the peninsula. Does that worry you? How would you make uh, make sense of it for our listeners?
2: It does worry me. I do think that South Korean public really supports, broadly supports U.S.-South Korea alliance and our true presence in South Korea. Although I do think that President Trump's sort of the rhetoric and asking for $5 billion right now is creating a sort of a negative environment, even within the public. But the Moon administration, this administration is a true believer in engagement, uh, uh, sort of moving forward. With North with, Korea. Yeah, engagement with North Korea, moving forward with North Korea at, at all costs. Um, so this sort of a, you know, if there's a bad interim deal, uh, I, I'm not sure if the Moon administration would think of it as bad because for them, any deal with North Korea almost sort of it's a it's better than nothing. Yeah, uh, and try to move forward with that. So, if, as Victor describes, if President Trump says in this interim deal with North Korea, okay, we'll have a peace declaration or we'll, we'll move forward with peace treaty and potentially even pulling out U.S. troops from South Korea, I'm not sure if the Moon administration within the Blue House would necessarily be so against that. Um, just because they are such an advocate for, uh, any kind of forward movement with North Korea. So even though it does, it, the true withdrawal is not supported by South Korea, this combination effect of President Trump asking for five billion dollars, five times more what South Korea is paying for with if, and if there is a deal with North Korea, I can see the Moon administration sort of saying, okay, well, this is, you know, on one hand, we have $5 dollars that's being asked by Trump. On the other hand, there's a deal. So. You know, our hands are tied, basically.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, so here's the thing. that Ideologically, the government in South Korea is, because it's progressive, is actually for more autonomous defense, more independence from the alliance. Progressive governments in Korea actually have higher defense budgets than conservative governments yeah. because they're looking for more autonomous capabilities, and they buy all sorts of silly things. So there's that. And then on top of that, you have, you know, this uh, a populist government, right, that really makes policy based on how they think the wind is blowing in, in Korea. Now there is a backstop, as Sue said, to any sort of anti-US rhetoric, and that is sort of the conservative, you know, the, the silent majority, if you will, who would oppose troop withdrawal or any of those other things. But if everybody's angry over $5 billion, you know, the US wanting five billion billion, five five times what the U- Korea has paid in the past. It's hard for the conservatives to right. argue against that, right? And so then you get a slippery slope where everything starts rolling in one direction, um, and, and especially because we have elections here in the United States, but they have elections also yeah. in Korea in April, very important legislative elections. So um, when you throw in, the, you know, the electoral politics of this, you know, the, again, it's a very dangerous combination.
1: And then, if as expected, uh, Korea withdraws from JISOMIA, the information sharing agreement with Japan, after the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, have publicly called on them not to do it. And a week after Secretary of Defense Esper and General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, are are meeting with their Korean counterparts, asking them not to withdraw from Trisomia. If all that happens, you can just imagine how hard it will be for defenders of the alliance meeting with the president saying, we have to take this deal Korea's offering, which we know is going to be less than a 500% increase, less than $5 billion. So that's the perfect storm. We, in this podcast, we try not to get too buried in the day-to-day stuff, although really this is important because this is, the kind of inflection point that could have decade long impact on our strategy. But let me turn to grand strategy. Uh, And I'll start with Victor. I you know, as you know, I wrote a history of US grand strategy. Korea and the Korean Peninsula have often been a blind spot for American strategists. There's the Mahanian Maritime View, which for over a hundred years has Been skeptical about having presence on the continent then there's a more continentalist view but 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 those thinkers the kissingers and scowcrofts have focused on china not korea korea peninsula sort of orphaned in american strategic thinking you can see it now in the national security strategy and the very mahanian uh, maritime free and open indo-pacific approach which is very aligned with japan where korea doesn't fit in the intellectual communities if you will in the academy you have these so-called restrainers Barry Posen's the most famous one, but you now have the Quincy Institute. They've been very outspoken opponents of intervention, but primarily in the Middle East. People like Senator Rand Paul have been very isolationist in my view, but primarily with respect to the Middle East. Looking at the debate on strategy, what do you see? Do you think that there's a constituency among strategic thinkers for getting off the peninsula, or do you think um, we're in okay shape there?
0: I don't know if there's a constituency for it, but I would say that there's a soft floor, if Mm -hmm. you will. In the sense that, yes, I mean, historically, uh, you, you, you put it U.S. grand strategy has a blind spot when it comes to Korea. I mean, the other way, of, in, in, not inconsistent, is to say that, you know, essentially, the United States' default strategic position on Asia is a maritime position. Right. right? We've always thought of ourselves as a maritime power in Asia, and that if we had the right maritime coalition, we could contain whatever force projection that comes. Whatever bad things that could come from the continent, we could contain it. Or way back in the olden days, you know, China was so backwards, like, we didn't even care. Like, we didn't think China could do anything that good. So that has been the default position. And even though Korea, over the past 70 years, has shown its value as an ally, you can't fight history. I mean, that's the default position. Um, every time we have neglected Korea, as you've written about, it has come back to bite the United States strategically in the rear end, right? And so there's always the danger that that could happen. And the way it could happen here is while there isn't Quincy Institute type of position with regard to getting off the peninsula, if the question gets raised mm-hmm. or if even the president just starts talking about it, you know, he says, well, you know, I'd like to get off Korea because they don't want to pay as much. I got to deal with my friend Kim, and, um, uh, but Congress won't let me, right? That is just going to start a discussion and where people will say, yeah, you know, we've been in Korea for 70 years or whatever it is. They're a rich country now. Um, they really don't need our help, right? And that's a very persuasive argument despite public opinion polls, despite, you know, strong support in Congress for the Alliance. If, there, if that sort of discussion takes place in the context of peace on the Korean peninsula, whether it's a real peace or a fake peace, it's very hard to beat that back, I think. So in that sense, I think there is a soft floor that I always worry about when when it
1: comes to U.S. commitment to Korea. And that potential constituency for withdrawal is on the left and the right? Yeah. Yeah, it's on both. Right. Both the left and the left. The left will like the peace agreement and cutting defense spending, and the right will... To what President Trump says is strategy, yeah. uh, but
2: I think uh, there's no serious Korea watcher who actually s- supports that. If you, if you, if you're any kind of historian or you, you have any kind of interest in the Korean Peninsula and you followed it, as Victor said and as you said, I mean, when we ignored Korea, when like 1949, when we pulled out the troops, when you know we left Korea out of the defense perimeter, the whole Etchison uh, speech. Uh, uh, Invited Kim Il Sung to invade South Korea, right? So, no matter what, we have to say our alliance commitment, our troop presence had kept peace for seventy plus years. Uh, and so, I think at least among serious Korea scholars, I, I don't think we have can even we don't even need to debate why we have troops uh, in Korea, in South Korea and why it's so important. And
1: serious Japan scholars, because right, we right. fought in Korea in large part because of Japan, because you can't have, as Victor pointed out, a maritime position in the first right. island chain if you let uh, Korea go. So talk about the Korean Peninsula in the context of the strategic competition with China. The Korean Peninsula has been the object of rivalry, competition, and war among great powers many times in history. Sino-Japanese War, russo japanese War, the Korean War. How important, how should people think about the Korean Peninsula in the context of strategic Competition with China, because when you read the national defense strategy or you read the national security mm-hmm. strategy, it, it's very heavy on Japan, Australia, India. Right. The U.S. Korea alliance it doesn't figure as prominently. Uh, how should we be thinking about the U.S. Korea alliance in the context of strategic rivalry with China?
2: Yeah, I mean, just historically, look at the geography, right? As you said, we, you know, we had over 1894-1895 Sino-Japanese War, with the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War, and the Korean War. Um, it, it is just a geostrategic landscape. When I mean, you just look at the geography. Obviously, the Korean peninsula is hugely important. And again, our true presence in South Korea, is not only to defend or deter against North Korea or deter North Korean threat. Um, it is, uh, to defend Japan. It is with our competition with China. And my, Whole point, you know. Also, when we think about long-term interests of the Korean Peninsula, I think we should also think about unification, potential unification of the mm-hmm. Korean Peninsula, and then where would that unified Korea be in terms of its own strategic orientation? Because if that unified Korea leans towards China, uh, that completely changes uh, the, you know, the our strategic landscape would be Asia. Right uh, and well, where, where if unified Korea is pro United States, that also uh, is important. It matters. So, I mean, just to answer your question, I think it's it's historically it's always been a battleground state, a, a a country for a region. Why why all the regional powers fought over the Korean Peninsula? Why the Korean Peninsula? How many times to get to China? Right. Yeah. From Ptolemy's invasions to um, so, uh, I think it's you cannot discount the importance of the Korean Peninsula in the region.
1: The Japanese have a grand strategy. I think it's pretty clear. It's a little weak on Korea, frankly. That it's very Mahanian and maritime. Also, does uh, does Korea have a grand strategy? I mean, I think most Koreans, especially conservatives, know they cannot survive in the environments you describe without the U.S. Korea alliance. But you don't. I don't see that in the strategy coming out of the Blue House. Is is it there somewhere?
0: No, it's a good question. Like, uh, you know, I think progressives have a pretty clear view on how they feel about defense but it's never been clear to me what their strategy is in terms of sort of Korea's geostrategic place in Asia. Mm. I think, ideally, they would like to hedge between their primary continental neighbor being China and then their primary maritime partner being the United States. But that becomes harder and harder to do in this new era of U.S.-China strategic competition. It gets harder and harder for Korea to sort of hedge between the two. They're increasingly forced to make choices they're used to China forcing binary choices on them, but they're not used to the United States mm-hmm. forcing binary choices on them. And, and unfortunately, when you look at these sorts of choices, the results of the choices may not be something that Americans like to see, because increasingly when Korea is faced with making those choices, they're starting to lean more towards China. Whether you look at things like AIIB, you know, Korea has not been explicit on the free and open Indo-Pacific, what China's doing in the South China Sea. You know, when forced to make a choice, they have not been leaning towards the United States. And that would be a real tragedy for U.S. strategy because, you know, Korea is the peace, is is the U.S. foothold on the continent. And that makes it very important in terms of the strategic balance between the United States and China and Asia. It would not be so important if we had not, by accident of history, formed this alliance with Korea. You know... Korea would just been a part of continental Asia. But the fact that that accident in history made us have this huge stake in Korea, if we were to lose that stake, mm-hmm. it would signal you know, a real defeat for the United States in terms of our strategy in Asia. So it was by accident of history that we got brought onto the Korean Peninsula. But it has become strategically very valuable for the United States in the
1: sense that if we, if, if we don't have it, if we lose
0: it, then,
1: you know, it's really China's game. I think in the uh, current strategic competition with China, Beijing's view is that the center of gravity for the U.S., in other words, the thing they, they will try to weaken is our alliance network. Yeah. And where I see the most pressure is actually not on Japan, not on Australia, not even on Thailand or the Philippines, it's on Korea. The 2014 SICA statement by Xi Jinping trying to get Korea to sign on to uh, no foreign blocks Asians settling Asian security alone, the THAAD boycott, billions of dollars um, uh, in cost to Lotte because of boycotts, because Lotte provided the land for the US missile defense deployments. I mean, China's going hard at that alliance. Mm-hmm.
2: But I think that China, that it was a, a real mistake on China because while South Korea is pursuing this hedging policy between United States and China and have been trying to avoid making these difficult decisions, however, I do think China overplaying with, with the whole sanctioning the wrong country, South Korea over the dead. Uh, issue, I think played very badly with the South Korean public. So there was sort of a wake-up call for the South Koreans, because until then, they're like, well, you know, we, we just have to hedge, we just have to balance. But I do think they're, they're, that has raised questions among many South Koreans and scholars saying, well, what's going on here with China? So China is now wholly dependable. So it, it was a, a strategic mistake uh, on the Chinese part. They I press too much on the I South don't areas.
1: think that the leadership in China sees it that way. That's our problem. They should be reading opinion polls. You've probably saw the Jungang Ilbo, I think it was Junang Ilbo poll, where seventy-five percent of Koreans said in, in the current US China standoff, Korea should be with the US. Last question. If you were back in the NSC right now, um, what would your what would you recommend to the president? What would you recommend to the National Security Advisor? Our posture should be. Should we force Korea, pressure Korea to make choices we want on Huawei, on I, AIIB and BRI uh, on the free and open Indo-Pacific, should we tolerate diversity of approaches to China? Uh, I, my, my worry is that the administration will think Korea is not a good ally. And so we have to force choices and then Korea won't be able to make those choices. What would you recommend? Start with Victor.
0: I mean, one of the mo- most important things, I mean, putting, putting aside the policy choices for the moment, one of the most important things, I think, for the U.S. to recognize is that of all of U.S. allies in Asia, arguably Korea has the most complex strategy vis-a-vis China, right? You know, it's, it's less complex for Japan. Japan and China will always be p- pure competitors forever, right? It's more complicated for Australia, but it's, it's, I would say it's much more complicated for Korea, not just because of geography and because of economics, but because Korea has this one other issue with China that nobody else has, and that is, The problem of North Korea and the prospects for unification, right? It is ingrained in South Korean strategic thinking that they need China's understanding when it comes to North Korea and unification. And for this reason, the Chinese can be, you know, as punitive to them as they would like, but Korea will always respond in a way that is more like in the long term we need china so we, so we so we have to you know withstand the brunt of their criticism some of their outrageous punitive economic actions uh, for that purpose so part of it is that until we get to that point unification or something like that there has to be an understanding that um, that korea is going to always be a little bit it's not going to be like japan and australia it's going to be a, a little bit different having said that though on things that are important to the United States where we want Korea to make policy choices, we should make clear that as an ally, we would like to see Korea be on our side. So things like supporting the free and open Indo-Pacific, or being able to say something about freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, or even on Huawei, right? Um, If they wanna be part of the China network or do they wanna be part of the Western US-based network? I mean, we have to pick and choose, like what are these things that we really want Korea to weigh in on the US side?
2: So I would completely agree with that. And so in order you know, for us to get South Korea um, to, to stand with us sort of in dealing with China, I think the most important part right now is picking and choosing and strengthening that alliance between South Korea and the United States. So there are a couple of things that we can do. For example, right now, the most immediate issue you know, convince the South Koreans to back away from Jisomia, letting Jisomia expire. Uh, amend the relationship with Japan. I think that has to be a priority. So we have to strengthen our alliance relationship with South Korea, trilateral alliance relationship with South Korea, Japan, and the United States. And then we can have, and this because of China, Dealing with China is a longer term, much much more complex issue. But it has to start with strong alliance relationship. Get off the whole $5 billion ass that we're doing with the South Koreans. So there are a number of things that we can do. And I think that's what I would be pushing for if I'm at the NSC.
1: We didn't talk a lot about North Korea today, but you can hear a lot more about North Korea policy and developments in Richard Shaw's podcast, The Impossible State on CSIS.org. But we did a nice job, I think, uh, setting the strategic stage for what, in the long run, really matters, which is the us korea alliance. Two democracies, common values, common strategic interests going through a rough patch. And you've helped put it in context. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.